So we've got this mini-series on Up, In and Out, the three-dimensional church, thinking particularly about our vision as a church. And last week I talked about the gap, didn't I, about where we are as followers of Jesus and where we aspire to be and how we should be really excited about this gap. Because this gap is, in a sense, the tension between where we are and where we'd like to be. And so we shouldn't beat ourselves up about where we're not but we should be encouraged and inspired to journey towards what Jesus has called us to be as his disciples. And last week, we specifically talked about up, and we talked about worship, and we specifically talked about worship in the context of our corporate worship as we gather together uh, week by week as uh, the local church here at St. James. Uh, This week, we're moving to in, so thinking about our um, community and how we love one another. And uh, have you each got one of these sermon outlines? Yes. So you can see the triangle in the top right-hand corner, uh, which shows up in and out. So we've done the up, we're on the in, next week we're on the out. And so there's, of course, a dynamic between all these, and you can't isolate them. Actually, they cross over, and they are linked. Um, So just want to begin with a story. A pastor in a church in the U.S. was about to start his sermon during an evening service when he briefly introduced a visiting minister in the congregation. He said that the visitor was one of his dearest childhood friends and accordingly asked him to say a few words. With that, an elderly man walked to the pulpit and told a story. A father, his son, and a friend of his son were sailing off the Pacific coast when a fierce storm hit them and the three were swept into the sea as the boat capsized. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most painful decision of his life. Who was he to throw the lifeline? The father knew his own son was a Christian, and the son's best friend was not. The father yelled, I love you, to his boy, as he threw the line to the boy's friend, pulling him to safety while his son disappeared forever beneath the waves. The father knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, but couldn't bear the thought of the friend stepping into an eternity without Jesus. Therefore, he sacrificed his son to save the son's friend. Concluding, the visitor said, how great is God's love for us that he gave his only son that we should be rescued. So take hold of the lifeline that the Father is throwing you in this service tonight. After telling the story, the old man took his place uh, back in the congregation and the pastor stepped up to the pulpit and preached his message. At the end of the meeting, some teenagers came up to the visitor. They had been looking very skeptical throughout the old man's story and had not responded to the appeal. The teenagers said, that wasn't very realistic. Teenagers keep it real. I like working with teenagers. They said mockingly, that wasn't very realistic. No dad would do that. You've got a point there, said the visitor. But I'm standing here tonight to tell you that this story gives me personally a great glimpse into the father's love for us. You see, I was that father, and your pastor here is my son's friend. Amazing story, isn't it? Amazing story of sacrifice, and it illustrates to us 
the love of God for each one of us, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for each one of us. If we were the only person living, God would have sent Jesus to die for us because he loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And up in and out are all a response to God's love for us. We mustn't miss this because if we miss this, we become legalistic and we do the up and the in the out because we know we should do. But rather, it is a response to the great love of God. And so last week in talking about up, I talked about how we need to prepare ourselves, the call to sacrifice, the call to minister to others, and the call to be transformed. And all this comes in the context of God's abundant, amazing love for each one of us. And as we consider in, as we consider what it is to love one another, we consider Jesus' commandment to firstly love God, but actually coming out of loving God is loving one another. In 1 John 3.16 we read, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so this morning, I want to focus on this very simple thing of loving one another. Very, very simple in concept, much more difficult in living out. And this morning, um, you know, as we've already talked about, we're very, dis- very aware of the disunity in our country and the challenges around this. Uh, we as the church are called to stand in unity. We are called to be one together uh, in Psalm 133 verses 1 to 3, we read how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Slightly different version on the screen there. But we are called to this place of unity. And in that place, God pours out his blessing. So I have a couple of questions for us this morning. Firstly, do you love the church? Do you love the church? Secondly, do you love St. James? And when I say, do you love the church and do you love, the, uh, love St. James, I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking about the people. Do you love the people? And I can see some nods out there, which is very reassuring. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure most of us would say yes to that. Uh, and yet, I'm sure also there's a gap between reality and our aspiration as well. I recognize in myself, I can certainly love the church more than I do why? Because I'm imperfect. There's always more, isn't there? And there's, there's always more potential. Uh, and this morning, I don't want us to beat us up, but I just want us to think about how can we be a church that is unified together in God? How can we pursue this and grow in this? And so there are four things I want to explore this morning as we think about this. And the first is that our unity is based on God's oneness. Our unity is based on God's oneness. I think we might have a slide for that first point. Uh, And so God calls us to unity, but he calls us to be unified uh, in modeling who God is. We find this reality in what is called the Shema. Um, Those those words that we had read to us from uh, Deuteronomy are called the Shema. And we often focus on the latter part. If we can have that verse up on the screen... We focus on the latter bit, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And rightly so, because that's a command that we're called to follow. But sometimes we forget that actually it starts with hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And central to our unity 
is in fact God's unity. In fact, the foundation or the basis for actually loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength is in fact God's unity. And we'll come on to that in just a moment. One scholar says this, um, as the fundamental truth of Israel's religion, that is the oneness of God and the fundamental duty founded upon it, that is love of God. And so this uh, verse really conveys something of the interrelationship between loving God and God's oneness. And of course, we see in the New Testament, don't we, that God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we read, God is love. And this isn't just saying that God is loving. You know, we can say that about many, many people, that they are loving. But this is actually saying that in his actual essence, in his being, that God is love. And there are other religions, aren't there, of course, that um, <clears throat> have gods, um, have, have, and are, are monotheistic. They, ha- they only have one God. But their gods aren't loving. So let's take Eastern uh, religion for a moment. You know, they may believe in one God, but that God is an impersonal God. An impersonal God cannot love. But even if you do believe in a unipersonal God, that's a single uh, person God who uh, is loving, sorry, rather, um, is a single God, not Trinity, they cannot be loving. Because actually to love, you need another being or another person to love. And so it's the unipersonal God who is able to be loving. If God is tripersonal, that's triune or Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he can be love in himself. If it's unipersonal, single personal, then first you have to create to then be able to love. So therefore power comes before love. But the God that we worship, Trinity God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore love exists right at the center, right at the, in the essence of who God is himself. And if love exists in this context, there is community. And it's in this community that God created each one of us, that he created humankind with the explicit purpose to love them. What an amazing thing that God has created us to love us. And in turn, he's created with the, us with the purpose to love him as well. And as we think about our unity this morning, it's so important that we model it on the Godhead, that we model it on the community of the Trinity. And we see this model, don't we, in the gospel. So in John's gospel, in John chapter 3 and verse 35, we read about the dynamic between the Son and the Father. We read, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And then in John chapter 5 and verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. You know, who are the people who we share everything with? Well, it's the people closest to us, isn't it? It's the people that we love and we know love us. And this is the wonderful relationship we see in the relationship between the Father and the Son, that there's this complete openness and working together. But the thing that's even more amazing is that did you know that you personally, Jesus, was praying for 2,000 years ago? 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you that you would be in unity with your fellow believers. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, the day before he was crucified, listen to what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
in John chapter 17, verse 11, he firstly prays for his disciples, his 12 disciples, and he prays this. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them, protect my 12 disciples by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And so he was praying for his 12 disciples that they would have that sense of unity, that they would be one as the Father and Son are one. Now just think about that for a moment. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That this relationship between Father and Son, the oneness, the completeness of them together, together with the Holy Spirit as well, of course, in the Trinity, this oneness that Jesus is praying for, this same oneness for his 12 disciples. Just think about the sons, the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder, uh, and, and Peter, those, those crazy guys who were hotheads and, uh, and, and uh, Jesus is praying that they'd be unified. What a, what a prayer of faith. Uh, and then Jesus goes on, and this is even more of a prayer of faith. My prayer is not only for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that's you and I. We have believed in Jesus through the message of those disciples, through the scriptures, through hearing the message from other Christians, we now believe. And Jesus is praying for us. And this is what he prays. He says that all of them may be one, all of them, worldwide, through time, that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so we have this amazing dynamic that Trinity God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this wonderful synergy. Uh, uh, and uh, at the essence of who the Trinity is, is love. And then God creates humankind. He sends Jesus, and Jesus prays that we would be one together. But not only would, be, would we be one together, but also that we would be wrapped up in the Trinity as one with the Trinity as well. It's mind-blowing. And so this is what God is calling us to. And he's praying for us as well, that we might realize it. And so the foundation of our unity is, in fact, God's unity. And that should give us great encouragement, because actually, frankly, if it was all down to me, I'd make a rubbish job of it. But praise God, it's up to him. It's not up to any single one of us, or even us corporately. It's up to God. It's he who enables us to be unified. Our oneness is based on God's oneness. So that's the first point. The second one is you always need more time to talk about God. So don't worry, that was my longest point. Second point is the call to unity. We as God's people are called to unity. Now, this may sound obvious, but it's really important that we state this because actually often the church struggles with unity. You can see massive church splits over the years um, on, a, on a massive scale, but also um, some of us may have experienced um, a church split on a local level. And that can be a deeply painful and troubling experience. And I want to say to you this morning that if you've experienced that, that I'm really sorry that's been the case. And God wants you to experience healing in that if you haven't already. He wants you to experience his forgiveness, his healing, and his grace. And where you perhaps still experience that pain um, I'd really encourage you to seek prayer in that, maybe even this morning or seeking out a Christian friend who can pray with you to work through that. And church splits can have a long-lasting impact 
on us personally, but also on that church as well and how it does relationships. But God is in the business of restoring. And God calls us to unity. And that unity is based uh, on God's unity, but it's also based on instruction from Paul. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, chapter 4 verse 1 we read, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Paul here is saying, now that you've decided to follow Jesus, live as Jesus lived. In other words, we're called to have the family likeness. Now, I don't know how many of you have had it, have it, said, had it said to you, Cor, you look just like your dad or you look just like your mum. Or, or maybe it's mannerisms. They say, oh, that's just like your mum or that's just like your dad. Or maybe you've overheard people say to your children, oh, you're just like your dad and you, or you're just like your mum and you think, oh, poor them. Um, but, 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 but there's this sense of likeness, isn't there, that actually we are like our parents. And some of us may even find ourselves later in life thinking, oh, why do I do that? And then you suddenly realize, actually, my parents did that or do that. And I remember as a, as a late teenager, um, my dad showing a photograph to me, and it was of when he was 18. And I looked at it, and I thought, that's me, isn't it? And then I, I looked further. I could see it was just slightly different, uh, and, but it looks so similar. And as God's people, we're called to carry the family likeness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. We're called to love as God loved. And Paul then goes on to say, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. You know, all these wonderful things that Paul talks about here. Be humble in the ancient world in Greece and in uh, the Roman world. Humility was scorned upon. It was seen as weakness. If you were humble, you were seen to be someone who was of lesser origin, that you didn't have the same kind of power. Arrogance was uh, epitomized. Arrogance was seen as a great thing. Oh, yeah, that person's strong. And I have to say, in our world today, I see more of this, more of this posturing, more of this uh, people in leadership asserting their power. But actually, God says we're called to be humble. We're called to be gentle to one another. doesn't mean that we're not bold when we need to be, but with that, we need to be gentle and we need to be humble. Um, also, Paul is very real about what it is to love one another. As I said earlier, it's very easy to have the concept of loving, but when such and such a person is really winding you up, it's not the first thing that comes to your mind necessarily that I'm going to love that person. You know, I love my kids deeply, but there are times where they really wind me up. I hasten to add there are probably times where I really wind them up as well. Um, but that's just part of human relationships, isn't it? That's the reality of community. And what does Paul write into that? Well, he says in this uh, passage, we are called to be patient. That we're called to bear with one another. And so let me just ask you an honest question, not that you're to answer. And please don't look at the person next to you when I ask this. But is there anyone here this morning who winds you up? I bet there is. You're all looking at me now. Oh. <laughs> but I bet there is. But actually, that's just humanity. That's the reality of life together. It's what we choose to do in that context. Do we choose to bear with one another and love each other and extend grace? 
I was talking to a teacher before the service and just explaining a bit about what I was talking about. And they were saying, actually, it's being, they, they're finding it's increasingly harder, this bearing with people, as there are um, significant behavioral challenges uh, with children and the boundaries are far less established. How do you bear with those children in your classroom who drive you potty? And, and that may be a real reality for some here. Um, but also for others, you know, in our situations that we find ourselves, you know, there are situations and there are people that wind us up. And in that context, it's very easy, isn't it, to depersonalize, to actually almost see those people as things rather than people. But God, even in those difficult situations, calls us to love. He calls us to love as God loves. God sacrificed his son for people who were enemies to him, who didn't love him, who had turned their backs on him. In the same way, we are called to model this unconditional love. We're called to bear with one another and express this with love, with humility, with gentleness. In Paul's words, we are called to keep the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Thirdly, the realities on which our unity is based. You'd be pleased to know, which I've already stated, is that our unity is not based on our own ability or our own feeling, but is it primarily based on the realities that are found in Christ. Doesn't that give you hope and encouragement that it's not down to us, it's down to God? And we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, we have seven times mentioned the word one. And I think Paul is really trying to drive home the significance of oneness, of unity. He says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And if we move on to the, the table that I've put together here, actually the way that this is structured is that Paul has put two lots of three. So there's seven ones here, and he's put two lots of three, and then there's one single one at the end. So if we just can rifle through those, please, Anita. So the first triad is the spelling out of major themes in Ephesians, the first of which is uh, the body, which is the visible universal church. So Paul is starting with that, which is visible and tangible. Um, the second is the spirit, the invisible Holy Spirit, who gives harmony and grace. And then what does the, this point us towards? Well, of course, as we were singing about earlier, it points us towards hope. So there's one hope, future hope, of a full cosmic harmony, that one day when Jesus returns, he will draw us all back together. And then the second triad is likely to be a traditional baptismal affirmation that may have been used at baptism services, um, but also elsewhere. And Paul talks about there being one Lord. And this was a favorite expression uh, for Paul. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's basically saying, you know, Caesar, you think you're Lord, but actually it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there's one faith likely to have in mind the baptismal confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is, of course, linked to the one above. And then uh, finally in this triad is the public declaration and unifying initiation, which is baptism. There is baptism. And then finally, um, the standalone, the climaxing one, if you like, we go right back uh, to where we started in Deuteronomy. 
where we think about the Shema. Hear, O Israel, there is one God and Father. There is only one God and Father. And so we see again in Paul's writing that he's linking us right back to who God is and that God's oneness should dictate our oneness. God's oneness should inspire us and give us that passion to be one together. Our oneness is based on him. And then fourthly and finally, coming into land now, is the diversity of God's grace releases life and growth. It's in fact in this place of unity that we are able to celebrate our differences and we're able to grow together as God's people. And in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, Paul develops this. I just want to focus on a couple of verses. Um, In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, Paul writes this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. And so there are three things I want to pull out of this. You can see I've highlighted them there. The first is that he has equipped God's people. He's given God's people to the church to firstly equip them. Okay, did you know that each one of you this morning has a role in equipping other people? It's not just my job. It's not just those, the job of people who are officially serving this morning, but it's all of our jobs to equip one another. Um, also, we're called to works of service. We're called to use our gifts. And this isn't like, oh, the vicar's twisting my arm to do this certain job in the church. This, this is about saying, actually, all of us are called to serve one another. It's part of what Jesus did. We're all called to use the gifts that we've got. And in fact, I'd go as far to say that if we don't use those gifts, we're inhibiting other people experiencing the fullness of God because actually God has given us his gifts that we may use those to serve others. I was really encouraged last week when I talked about how each of us have been given gifts and we can serve one another. And someone came up to me after the service and said, oh, Josh, I'd love to join a team. And so they're um, on the way to join in the Connect team, which is fantastic. I just thought that was a really simple response to the message um, last week. And I'm not doing a recruitment drive now. Let me just make that really clear. But what I do want to say is if, if you feel like, yeah, you want to get involved and get stuck into the church, but you don't know what it is, there's just a heart desire there. Can I really encourage you to talk to your small group leader or talk to myself um, or talk to one of the other ministry team? And we'd love to talk through with you. You know, what's a way that you could get involved in helping to serve God's church. Because part of us loving one another, part of us being unified, is serving one another as well. And then the third thing, which is just wonderful, that actually as we live in this place and as we um, equip and as we serve one another, that the body of Christ is built up. That's the reality that we see happen. Actually, it's a vicious circle, a a positive vicious circle, that as we build one another up, we become uh, more unified. And we finish, don't we, this uh, passage, the knowledge of God uh, built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, we reach unity. And as we reach unity, we become mature. And as we mature, we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. 
And so this morning, I want to ask that question again. Do you love the church? Do you love the people of St. James? How can we grow in this? How can we become people who equip one another, who uh, enable one another to grow, who serve one another, and as a consequence of this, that we build one another up in love?